It is such a joy for us to worship uh, with the Fioris uh, with us. I, my heart is so full um, with joy just for the time we've got to spend with them both here and uh, at their home in Milan. You know, I don't know if you remember, and I would just remind you of some of the details of their ministry, but um, one of the functions of the ministry that God has granted them in Milan is that they operate the only Christian radio station in northern Italy, which I think it's still the only one. Yeah, so Radio Vita. And this, um, of course, this ministry, as you may remember if you've been with Green Pond for many years, faced severe uh, legal challenges because there was another radio station that was trying to basically just take it over illegally. And so I think Sam and Joan and their entire team, uh, Michael and Nina as well, really have modeled well for us what it looks like to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, meaning they've had to navigate the court system and they face significant opposition in that, but God has given them grace, and I think they've maintained their Christian witness so far. Keep up the good work. Uh, yeah. But that's not the only opposition that they faced. Um, some of you might remember that they had issues with uh, their, their meeting place with the government. Actually, bo- both uh, Punta Lode and Punta Luce have had issues um, with the local government trying to prevent them from meeting in their buildings. And again, being shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. They've had to navigate some legal maneuvering there and and utilize the courts uh, in order to protect the mission of the church. And by God's grace, he has provided and protected. And and of course, even as we think about other circumstances that they face, they face opposition to the gospel. And I bring that up to you, not just because they're with us this morning, but I bring that up to you because it's a reminder of God's faithfulness in the face of ever-present opposition. And that's really what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10. He's equipping the 12, and then more broadly in the second half of the chapter, he's equipping all disciples of his to follow him in the face of opposition. Now, it won't always be the most intense opposition, but there always will be pushback against the gospel. And God is faithful even when his followers have to answer legal charges, and have to navigate the courts, and have to deal with the problems of people uh, attacking them in different ways. Really, as we think about Matthew 10 as a whole, we probably need to ask the question, am I ready to follow Christ into the flames? Because what Jesus talks about here is his followers facing intense persecution amongst other kinds. And so he is preparing his followers to do just that to walk into very difficult situations and be faithful with their presentation of and living out of the gospel. Am I ready to follow Jesus into the flames? Well, maybe we need to back up a minute. Maybe we should just ask, am I ready to follow Jesus into disrepute amongst my family, coworkers, or fellow students? Because it's more likely than not that you will not face death as a follower of Jesus today but you will face opposition. And when we read passages like this, sometimes we can basically shrug our shoulders and say, well, we're not facing imprisonment, so, you know, this is really for somebody else. But it's not for somebody else. The Spirit of God has gifted us this passage of Scripture to help us ask, am I ready to follow Christ into whatever opposition I might face? And it might primarily be in our culture, disrepute, where people will think less of you because of your faith in Jesus, because of your commitment to the gospel. Anytime we think about facing opposition for our faith, we may struggle with fear. 
Fear of what will happen. Fear of what will people say. Fear of what will people do. Fear, maybe most of all, of what will they think about me. And this morning in our passage, Jesus prepares us not only to face the opposition, but specifically to deal with our fear. So let's unpack these verses together and let's see how Jesus equips us to navigate these waters, the the forces of opposition, and to deal with our fear of negative repercussions for being a follower of Christ. Okay, we're here in verse 24. Some of your Bibles will have verses 24 and 25 with the previous paragraph, some with the next paragraph. They really are transitional verses, okay? So I like them with what follows, and since I'm preaching today, that's what we're doing. So there you go. So uh, verse 24, although it does follow right along with the issue of persecution that he just brought up in verses 16 to 23. So, okay, verse 24, Jesus teaches us, a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. Jesus uses a simple comparison here in verse 24. He says, a disciple of which the 12 were disciples and of which you and I would be counted as disciples, as followers of Christ. The disciple is not above the master. So there's just a ranking here, basic ranking. And he he uses another analogy where he says, or a slave, right, is not above his master. This second comparison of a slave to a master, it actually helps us to think about the fact that Jesus has authority to lead Christians. He is our Lord. He is our master. And and when we think about the concept of slavery, when it's applied in the Bible to Jesus' followers, it's never a negative. It's always a positive. That we are slaves of Christ because he is a good master and we are safe as his servants, as his slaves. But nonetheless, the slave doesn't call the shots. The slave isn't above the master. And what Jesus is about to explain is that what the master or the teacher experiences, the disciple or servant or slave will likely also experience. Watch verse 25. It is enough For a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. Okay. If they called the head of the house, Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Jesus says, okay, this is the deal. The disciples become like the master. They're not above the master, but they should become like the master. And if you will be like the master, guess what they said about the master? Verse 25, if they called the head of the house, Beelzebul, Well, then what are they going to do to the followers? Now, what does that mean? They called the head of the house Beelzebul. Beelzebul is a term in the New Testament that is applied to Satan, okay? It's actually an old school name for the Canaanite god Baal or Baal. And so it's actually Baal of Ekron, which was a Philistine city. And so they used to call um, Baal of Ekron, they used to call him the, the, the leader of Ekron, Prince of Baal. Like, uh, you know, he's like this, and so Prince of Baal's Baal-zebul, right? And so then they had a little play on it, or, or Baal-zebul, uh, yeah, and they had a little play on it where Zebul can sometimes mean flies. And so they, they used to call him Baal of the Flies, which is kind of like a put-down. Like, who wants to be, you know, associated with flies? Well, I don't know. It's, again, it was a put-down, so I think the idea is nobody does, Right. So by the, that was in the Old Testament. You'll find that title in 1 Kings. It's by the time of the New Testament, the New Testament authors applied that title to Satan himself. And so basically what they were saying about Jesus is that Jesus is doing all these miracles by satanic power. 
We've already encountered that in the recent um, you know, passages in Matthew that we covered. And we'll see more of that, especially in chapter 12. So Jesus, as the teacher, as the master, he's been accused of being satanic. right? That it's by satanic power that he does these miracles. Jesus says, if they called me that, what do you think they're going to do with you? The disciple's not above the master. The slave's not above the, the disciple's not above the teacher. The, the slave's not above the master. If they called the master, if they called the teacher satanic, what do you think they're going to say about you? Jesus is basically saying, buckle up, boys. I mean, it's about to get bumpy. You are headed for turbulence. And of course, he's already introduced the concept of persecution. But as he does so here, he's basically saying, you need to have clear expectations difficulties are part of discipleship. It's a fact. Difficulties are part of discipleship. The world will treat us as it treated Jesus during his first advent. John 15 verse 18 says it another way. If the world hated me, well, they're going to hate you. That's a fact. There will be a variety of responses to Jesus. Not all people accuse Jesus of being satanic. But the fact is that everywhere he went, he faced some kind of opposition and some version of rejection. And what Jesus is teaching us in these two verses is if you are a disciple of his, you will face opposition. Difficulties are part of discipleship. The question is, what did you expect? Jesus says you need to be realistic here about what it means to be a Christian in this world. Being a Christian, following Christ, is not easy. Okay, It's not some kind of uh, you know, rose-petal-covered path that you get to walk on and just enjoy without any kind of opposition. I think maybe so often we have false expectations of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Um, we enjoyed our spiritual life conference and my living friend, Ed Moore, came and preached to us, and it was such a blessing. Um, Pastor Ed's so great. He's crazy, though, and he's a Mets fan, uh, which the two are basically equated. Um, so as many of you know, uh, so he's a, big, like, he's a big Mets fan, like a really, really big Mets fan. And by God's grace, one time I had the opportunity to go to a Mets game, a Dodgers-Mets game, and uh, with Pastor Ed and some others, including my family. And so here comes the boys' family uh, to City Field, uh, regaled in our Dodgers paraphernalia, right? Now, it's all about expectations, people, okay? If you go to a Mets game, if you go to a Mets game and you're wearing a Mets shirt, right? If you're wearing Mets regalia, if you've got the Mets hat, the Mets shirt, are you going to face opposition? No. You're at home, you're amongst your people. You, th- this is your tribe. There they are, okay? Right? So that's how it's going to be. That's what you expect. When we were walking into City Field, I internally had to give myself a little pep talk. This is New York. You might die tonight. <laughs> but it's worth it. It's worth it for the Dodgers. No, whatever. Who cares? Right? And I, we actually laughed about it because part of having the kids with us was, I think, was a safety because I think there would have been a lot more swearing at us had we not had the children with us. And uh, I was trying to remember, oh yeah, Dodgers won. Yeah, that was the Dodgers won the game. So it was even better for us to be there. But we went into the stadium wearing the enemy's jersey, right? Fully expecting that there would be some opposition. That is what this passage is about. Listen, if you're following Jesus today, right now in this world, 
you need to be prepared to face opposition. You're not on the home team. I mean, this is the reality. And so Jesus says, you you need to be aware that how they treated the master is how they'll treat the slave. And how they treated the teacher is how they'll treat the disciple. There are false expectations about Christianity. Jesus will solve all my problems. That's like a yes and a no. He ultimately will solve all your problems, but not necessarily in the short run, right? Or I've earned blessing because I put my faith in Jesus, because I attend church, because I give money to the church and to missionaries, because I I give up my time and serve at the church. Therefore, in the deal, I should get blessing in return, right? In in these false, uh, I think, presentations of what the Christian life uh, looks like, there's a diminished focus on the real teaching of Jesus that says you are going to face opposition. You need to be ready to face opposition. One false expectation we may have today is the idea that because we live in a culture that has freedom of religion, that freedom of religion automatically equals no opposition to our faith. And that is not true. Just because we have freedom of religion doesn't, think people are going to be, doesn't mean people are going to be excited that you're a follower of Christ, disciple of Jesus. So, now listen, we can love the culture that we live in. We love the people who are around us. But at the same time, we have to recognize that they may reject Jesus and some of them may actively oppose the advancement of the gospel. All Christians will face opposition. Now, with that, okay... With that, just like when the pilot on the plane says we're about to go through turbulence, right? Some of us get nervous. We might have some fear about what is going to happen to me with this opposition. And so Jesus directly addresses the problem. Watch verse 26. It's so nice. Therefore, Jesus says, therefore, don't be afraid of them. We're going to see three reasons in this section why we shouldn't be afraid. Therefore, don't be afraid of them. Who's the them? Those that will oppose the advancement of the gospel in whatever version it comes. Opposition of any kind, okay? Therefore, don't be afraid of them. Since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that that won't be made known. Okay, that's verse 26. Jesus says, first of all, don't be afraid because they will be judged. Like all the opposition that's, that is against Christ, all the persecution in whatever form, Jesus says all that hidden stuff, the whole thing, all of it, whether it's, whether it's in, in plain sight or hidden away, all of it will be laid bare at the day of judgment. And so they will get what they deserve. Those who oppose Christ and oppose the advancement of his gospel. And, and vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's his agenda item, not ours. So Jesus says, don't be afraid of them. Don't worry. I mean, yeah, they can kill you, but don't worry because they will be judged. Then, in light of the fact that their hidden, perhaps, opposition will be laid bare, Jesus says something very interesting in verse 27. He says, okay, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Recall that up to this point, Jesus in his ministry has been pretty mellow in you know, being loud or, or bold in the advancement of the gospel. He's been playing it down. Remember, he heals some and says, don't tell anybody, right, that I've healed you. I mean, kind of, you know, keeping it under wraps. Well, those days are basically transitioning now in his ministry to where he's sending out the 12 to go throughout Israel and tell everybody the Messiah is here, the kingdom's here, it's go time. Repent and believe. 
right? And so with that transition, Jesus says, okay, I'm telling it to you in the dark. I'm telling it to you in a whisper, but now it's time for you to say it in daylight. Now it's time for you to shout it from the housetops. Jesus says, it's time now to be publicly known as a follower of Christ. It's time now to make public this gospel message that I have brought to you. So don't fear, okay? They'll be judged, and, and because what's hidden will be will be made known and they'll be judged for their opposition. It's time to to make the gospel public. It's time to go live with it. He goes on in verse 28. Second time he says, don't fear. Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 28, second reason why we shouldn't fear those who oppose the gospel or those who persecute Christians is because God is the one who issues eternal consequences. You know, Jesus makes a distinction here. He says, your body, he says, anybody can kill your body, right? I mean, that's, that's something that, that anyone can do, but only God can judge your eternal soul. And so Jesus says, because of that, you need to be more worried about God and faithfulness to God and fear of God than fear of people who can, who can kill you as we were just praying it through already this morning from the book of Psalms. What can mere man do to me? Well, use your imagination. Man can do a lot of things to you. But the point of the psalm is, the man, man can't do anything to me outside of God's sovereignty, and man can't do anything to me that impacts my eternal state. Right? God's the one who judges for eternity. So the second reason we shouldn't fear persecution or those who, who oppose the gospel is because God is the one who issues eternal consequences. But he's not just the judge. Notice verse 29 through 31. He says, Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. If you just pause there, sparrows are cheap. Still are. Okay? Sparrows are cheap. Uh, They're all over the place. And yet Jesus says here, You know that not a sparrow dies without the father knowing and having ordained it. That God is sovereign over every aspect of this universe, including the lifespan and expectancy of sparrows. Okay? But watch where the argument goes. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. Now listen, I have two jokes about this that are, that are just fairly obvious, okay? So just for some of us, it's easier to count the hairs on our head for obvious reasons, okay? But it's not about you. Okay, this passage is not so much about that. It's more about the rest of us who may be younger and yet have many hairs. No one can count the hairs on their head. What is he talking about? Jesus is saying, you realize that, that the Father has intimate knowledge of every aspect of your being up to and including the exact number of hairs on your head, which changes, by the way, minute to minute. That the Father knows, he knows all, everything about you to that level of detail. Watch verse 31. So, third reason, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The third reason that we shouldn't fear those who can persecute us, those who oppose the gospel, is because God cares for us. In his sovereign reign over this universe, where he knows everything that's happening and has ordained everything, including at what moment a sparrow will die and fall to the ground, Jesus says he knows all the hairs on your head. And guess what, brother or sister, disciple, slave, he cares for you. You are worth more than the sparrow to him. 
Jesus made the same argument in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, but here he applies it to specifically being an antidote to fear of persecution. So not only is persecution a given, difficulties are part of discipleship, he says you're going to be afraid, perhaps, of what that opposition looks like. He says don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God will judge them. God's the one who issues eternal consequences. You should fear him instead of the one persecuting. And crucially, God cares for you, which doesn't necessarily mean that you will have an easy life and that you won't face persecution. It means that when you face persecution and opposition, God has ordained it up to and including the day of your death. You're worth more than sparrows. So God cares for us. That, that frees us from fear of opposition. Basically, Jesus says here, fear the one worth fearing. Three times in verses 26 to 31, he says, don't fear. But then, of course, he tells us which one to fear. Fear the one who issues eternal consequences. That fear is not a a fear of judgment. It's meant to be the fear of the Lord that is so thoroughly described in the Old Testament. It is an awe and a reverence for God because we recognize his power and his majesty. It's that that right-thinking respect for God because of who he is and his attributes. Jesus says, let the the fear of God drive you. And when when your fear, right, when when your respect, when your focus, when your attention is given to the, the eternal creator of this universe who's sovereign over everything, who's infinitely holy, and who loves and cares for you, you won't fear what the people in the cubicle next to you are saying about you. Or how the kids at school are snickering about how you wouldn't go to that party. Or the, the mockery from that atheist university professor who runs down your Christian faith in front of the whole class. You won't fear it. Because you're fearing the right one. Fear the one worth fearing. We see here that faith in God's sovereign care alleviates this fear, and it is meant to embolden and comfort us. This is all about basically weighing your priorities. What do you care about? Do you care about living a long life and not being persecuted, or do you care about following our glorious and eternal God who is the judge of all? Jesus basically informs us here that, well, a shorter life may end up being better. It's not, I mean, of course, a, a long life is a blessing and a gift from God. And should the Lord grant you long life, use it for his glory. But brothers and sisters, eternity is a lot longer than these 80 or 90 years that God grants us, perhaps. Yeah, there's many who can kill the body, but there's only one who can kill the soul. I should tell you, um, my friend Zwingli, back in the 1500s in Switzerland, who was responsible in many ways for the advancement of the gospel in in that part of the world during the Reformation. Uh, Zwingli, because of political circumstances, he ends up in a battle, and he's in his early 30s. And uh, it it was, the political lines were also drawn on religious lines. The battle wasn't about religion, but it it was drawn because of the advancement of the Reformation. And so you have some Roman Catholic states who have banded together, and then, uh, evangelical states who have banded together. And so the Roman Catholic states had, in this case, attacked uh, the evangelical states. They viewed it as an act of self-defense because uh, they were in the minority. 
And so they attacked. And so Zwingli answers the call. He and, uh, and some others went. And uh, unfortunately, they weren't very well prepared, uh, broadly speaking. And they go into this battle. And uh, the tide quickly turned against them. And Zwingli is mortally wounded in the battle. So he's laying there and he's dying. And the, the reports are what this is what happened. Okay, So he's laying there dying on the battlefield. His enemies are around him, these Roman Catholic soldiers and, uh, and some priests. And so he has... He has thoroughly rejected the teaching, the false gospel teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in his life and writings, okay? So they come to him, and as he's dying, they mocking him, they offer to have him, give him last rites from the, from the priest. Basically to say, do you want to recant now and, 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 you know, turn back to the Roman Catholic Church? And uh, Zwingli is reported to have said in that moment, you may kill the body, but you cannot kill the soul. Basically, here are those opposed to the gospel who have come right up and they're about to take his life or his life is about to expire and they're offering him a chance to go back and to basically side with them. And he says, there's one that I fear more than you. Incidentally, they did put him to death. I wonder, who do you fear? Whose opinion matters most to you? Right? Who, who is it that if they knew of your robust faith in Jesus, you would feel uncomfortable because you wouldn't know how they would respond? Jesus is preparing us. Difficulties are part of discipleship. They're not optional. And, and this opposition is not outside of the plan of God. It's still within his plan. Note verse 32. Jesus continues to explain this principle and call us to be prepared to face it. He says, therefore... Everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. I love it. Jesus is like, listen, there's no secret Christians. There's, there's no, this is not an option to come to faith in me and then hide, right? Even though you might face opposition, Jesus says, no, it's time. And what he says here specifically is, if you acknowledge me, that, that term acknowledge, some of your Bibles might say testify. The, the idea here, it's a, it is a primarily a, a court you know, legal term. And the idea is that you'll testify when you're called before, as Jesus said earlier in the chapter, before judges and kings and councils, that you'll testify before them and you will say, yes, I have trusted in Jesus the Messiah. This is what I believe about the gospel, right? So you'll testify to that. And you'll acknowledge before others, certainly even though it's a legal term, it's, it's meaning is beyond just a legal context here, that you're willing to be known in your neighborhood as a follower of Jesus. You're willing to be known at your school or at your place of work as a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, if you acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. He, looks, he says, look forward to that day of, of your death or his return. And he says, I will acknowledge you. You belong to me. But, verse 33... Whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, well, hold on. If you do not acknowledge that you belong to me while you are on this earth, what makes you think I will acknowledge you as mine upon the day of your death or the day of my return? Jesus is not saying we earn our salvation by publicly professing the gospel. He's saying if you are actually a Christian... If you are my disciple, you will be known as my disciple. 
If you are not publicly known as a follower of Jesus, you are not a follower of Jesus. That's the point. It's not you earn salvation this way. He's saying, if you are my disciple, you will be known as my disciple. And if you deny me on earth, then I will deny you. Now, he's not talking about one moment in time. He's talking about your life as a disciple. And we actually know this is true because of the example of Peter. You'll remember that Peter did deny Christ. But of course, Jesus did a work and Peter was restored. And on the whole, as a disciple of Jesus, Peter ends up with a really powerful testimony. And he does indeed go to his death at an untimely age because of being an apostle of Jesus. So the fact is, Peter was redeemed from one moment of denial. The question is not one moment. The question is, what does the the consistent pattern of your life as a disciple say? And if you're hiding from the public eye and you don't want to be known as a Christian because of potential persecution, Jesus says, then you may not be my disciple. He goes on, verse 24. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Not a very popular verse, this one. I mean, Jesus is saying, listen, yes, the Messiah will bring peace ultimately, I mean, think about the birth of Jesus, peace on earth, right? Peace has come through Jesus, absolutely. How does he bring about this peace, though? He brings about this peace through bringing the message of the kingdom, that by faith in him, you become kingdom sons and kingdom daughters. And that message, turns out, is a divisive message. The gospel divides. And so Jesus says, yeah, well, the fact is, I haven't come to necessarily make your life easier in the short run. I actually came to bring division, And when he uses the term sword there in verse 34, he's using that as a metaphor for something which divides, something that is able to cut, right, and and divide. Notice, though, how deep this division may cut. Verse 35, For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Jesus quotes here from Micah chapter 7, verse 6, where uh, the prophet Micah foresees and and talks about Israel being in such a state of rebellion against God that families are devouring each other. And in this case, Jesus applies that verse and he says, the fact is, as I bring the gospel, it will divide families. What does he mean? He means as he preaches, some people in the family will respond in faith and say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah and I will follow him and give all for him. And other people in the family will say, you're crazy. You shouldn't do that. In honor and shame cultures, as we saw last week, some people will say, you're actually not worthy of being in my family anymore because you've followed Christ. You're out of the family. And in some extreme cases, they'll execute family members for turning to Christ. That's exactly what Jesus is describing here, that the very message of the gospel divides, and sometimes it even divides families. How does it divide? Well, it divides Because in this message, Jesus says every single person is a sinner, right? And he says there's one way of being forgiven of your sins. It's through me. That message doesn't leave any room for hiding. It's a confrontational message. It's a message of exclusive salvation by faith in Jesus alone. And Jesus says this message divides. I came to bring this message, and this message will cause problems in the short run. It will bring peace in the long run, but it will divide in the short run. Then he, then he asks the, the question quite boldly, and these are some uncomfortable verses, but watch verse 37 down to 39 there. He says, The one who loves a father or mother more than me 
is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you just pause there, verse 37, Jesus says, if you have to choose between me and your family, you choose me. Difficulties are part of discipleship. And the fact is, Jesus is fully aware of the heartache and the, the, the tension and the, the difficulty and conflict that this involves within a family. He knows how hard it is. And I know some of you have had to live this reality where your family relationships have been jeopardized and some broken because of your faith in Jesus. But Jesus says, make no mistake, when push comes to shove at the end of the day, because of eternity, you have to love me more than your family. Now, Jesus is not saying, don't love your family. He's not saying, don't treat your family with respect and care. Obviously, he still would affirm the command to honor the father and mother, right? And for children to obey your parents, absolutely. Those are all still in force. But here's the reality. Jesus says, honor your father and mother. Yes, children obey your parents unless it comes to following me. And if your parents or your family have rejected you for following me, that's okay. I know it's not easy, but Jesus says difficulties are part of discipleship. Sometimes my gospel divides even families. And you have to decide right now, who do you care more about, your family or me? This is hard. This one's hard especially because families are and can be a gift from God. They're so wonderful sometimes. But the fact is, right, as much as we love our families, and rightly so, we love our families, it is easy to make our families our God, where we care more about our family and our family reputation than we care about Jesus. Jesus says, that is not going to work. Difficulties are part of discipleship, and it might even boil down to the family. That's a tough one. The next part's even harder. Verse 38 and 39. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Verse 38 here, Jesus is talking about and alluding to the reality of uh, execution by crucifixion, which in the Roman Empire, just so we're all on the same page, execution by crucifixion was reserved for uh, political enemies of Rome and people that Rome wanted to make a public spectacle of in the eyes of the public. It was not only a brutal way to die, because in crucifixion you die through self-asphyxiation. You basically um, uh, suffocate yourself because you're so exhausted you can't pick yourself up to breathe on the cross, okay? But in addition to that, there's a massive focus on public disgrace and shaming. That's why you carry your cross through the streets. That's why the people are crucified by the city gates. So everybody coming and going can see this is what happens when people are political enemies of Rome, right? That's the idea. So crucifixion isn't just about physical pain. It's about social disgrace. Jesus says, hey, if you're going to be my disciple, pick up your cross. And while we're all familiar with that terminology, I'm not so sure we're quite familiar with the exact nuance here because Jesus is saying, yes, you need to be ready to die for me, but you also need to be willing to carry that cross through the streets of your neighborhood and let your neighbor spit on you. That's what you need to be ready for. You need to be ready. It doesn't always come to this, but you will face opposition. So you need to be ready to carry that cross through the hallways of your school and let those kids laugh at you and mock you. You need to be ready to pick up that cross and carry it from the parking lot into your office building where you work 
and let people just, just think you're so ridiculous and you're so backwoods and you're so crazy. Jesus says, that's what you got to be ready for. And he says, it's interesting. Anyone who doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. There's no secret Christians. There's no hiding, right, and pretending I'm not really a Christian, but, you know, these other people are so crazy. But Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. In fact, it may cost you everything to be a Christian, but it's worth it. Verse 39, anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. This is a play on words with the term life here. Jesus is saying, if you're so obsessed with the here and now in these 60 to 90 years that you have, if that's all you're, you're worried about, you will lose your eternal soul. You'll, you'll face judgment forever. So you're going you're gonna to lose eternity for these, these years that you have here. But he says, if you're willing to sacrifice this and recognize that Jesus and what he calls you to is worth so much more, if, you, if you're willing to lose your life, Jesus says, then you will finally find it. Then you'll have it. The primary context here is about facing that opposition. Difficulties are part of discipleship. Right? Jesus says, this is what you're signing up for, to follow me. This is what you will face. Picking up your cross means prioritizing Christ above all else. Picking up your cross means prioritizing Christ above all else. In a pluralistic society where we don't believe in absolute truth, the message of the gospel is by nature offensive. So when people are saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe, you can believe anything, and you say, no, it does matter what you believe, and we're all sinners destined for condemnation if we don't trust in Jesus... That is an offensive message. That is a message that says to people, you're not okay, and you can't be okay without trusting in Christ. And our culture is not okay with that. We just have to recognize, okay, our culture is not okay with it. Doesn't mean we're mean about it. Doesn't mean we're hateful and spiteful. We shouldn't be known as people who are harsh, right, and who are uh, judgmental or angry, right? We need to be known as loving people who care for others, absolutely, and who... Hold this line. I wonder, have you embraced the social stigma that comes with being a Christian? It's more and more an issue for us today. Have you embraced the social stigma that comes with being a Christian? Have you embraced the, being the weirdo and being known as a follower of Jesus? Find your life, people. Find it. Find it by losing it. That's the message here. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, there's wonderful, glorious good news tucked in this warning. Jesus says you actually do need to find your life, and there is a way to find your life by losing it, by repenting of your sin and by turning and trusting in him. That's the gospel message. And of course, there's this opportunity that Jesus gives, even as he shares this message with the 12 and it goes beyond them, to say, listen, this is what I have come to provide for you. Ultimate salvation, eternal life, protection forever, and in the short run, yes, opposition. Maybe one of the reasons you're hesitating to come to Christ is because you don't want to be known as a believer. Can I just encourage you to think bigger? Think bigger. And everybody's trying to save their life, but there's only one way to save it. That's to lose it. Now, thankfully, it's not all opposition. 
we find here at the end of the chapter a little bit of good news tucked in for the 12 and I think for us. Watch verse 40. Jesus says, The one who welcomes you welcomes me, and the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. This is not just about welcoming. He's envisioning the 12 going out, and the idea is that whoever receives the 12 and agrees with their message, they are accepting and receiving the words of Jesus, which means they're accepting and receiving the words of the Father. So there's a chain here, right? A chain of testimony from the 12 to the Son to the Father. And Jesus says, if they accept you, they accept the message, they accept me, they accept the Father. It's a package deal here, right? So praise God, that will happen. He goes on, though. There's benefits that come from that. Verse 41, anyone who welcomes a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Think of Elijah and Elisha, the people that responded positively to their ministry. They received the blessings of healing and provision. Jesus says, you receive the apostles as spokesmen for God, right, as prophets, then you'll receive a prophet's reward. He goes on, and anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. So the righteous person is the prophet, is the apostle. It's all the same thing. Well, what's the righteous person's reward? It's eternal life and blessing. How do we get that reward? By accepting the message of the apostles, which means accepting Christ, which is accepting the provision of the Father. Verse 42, he says, Similarly, whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. What's he talking about kids for all of a sudden? Right? Well, this is what's going on. Jesus is comparing disciples, specifically the apostles, to little children. And children in first century, right, uh, in first century Israelite culture, um, and really in general in the first century, children were insignificant, not important. I mean, high infant mortality rates, until they survived past a certain age, they weren't really much use for, for work and for provision. So children were tolerated, right? Jesus says, if you are my disciple, you're going to be insignificant in the sight of the world. But somebody somewhere might give you a cup of water meaning they might, they might show you some favor because you're a believer. They might provide for you. They might, they're going to receive you and receive the message. And he said, for all those who receive that message, for all those who respond positively to the gospel preached by the apostles, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. You don't just get a prophet's reward. You get a righteous person's reward. You don't just get a righteous person's reward. You get a righteous person's reward that's forever. Jesus says, for all who respond positively to to us, to this apostolic message, this is the gift that I give. Now, that hits us in two ways. It reminds us, of course, that what matters most is how we respond to Jesus. So I think it's fair to just say, make sure you welcome the apostles. Make sure you've accepted this apostolic message. But then, of course, secondly, we see that tucked in this is the acknowledgement that, yes, we may be viewed as insignificant by the world. Even so, some people will believe. <laughs> Can I just tell you, we, sometimes we're so afraid to speak the gospel to others because we're afraid of what they're going to say or do. And honestly, most of the time, what are they going to do? Are they going to yell at you? Probably. It's New Jersey. They'll yell at you. Okay, that's fine. Let them yell. They're going to slap you. That's okay. Give them the other cheek, right? But did you know that, brothers and sisters, as you deliver the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others, some people will believe the message. Because you did. (laughs) Because you did. You are in this verse. 
You have received eternal reward because you've trusted in Christ. You accepted the apostles' message, which was the message from Jesus about Jesus, which is from the Father. That's, that's the beauty of it. So I think Jesus gives them that good news there just to remind them, hey, it's not all going to be bad. But the fact is, this is the reward that you're getting. This is the payoff. So yes, there may be some opposition in the short run. Yes, difficulties are part of discipleship. But brothers and sisters, there's so much more that he's gifted us. We can endure for the moment. We can endure these trials for a time. We can be known as believers. We can be laughed at. We can be made fun of. We can be passed over for promotions. We can be mocked in in media. We can be misrepresented in television and movies. That's okay. That's okay. Let's work hard at loving Christ and loving others. And some will believe. I think the question we have to ask this morning is, will we follow in the footsteps of those who found their lives by losing it? I got to tell you about one of my friends uh, this morning. Actually, two of my friends, really. Uh, Back during the Reformation in the 1530s, there was a scholar and pastor by the name of John Frith. And he was in England. He actually had fled England because the situation was too dangerous for him to be there. He ended up going back. And of course, he was arrested this, he was friends with one of my other friends, Willie T., William Tyndale, who has translated the Bible into English from Greek and Hebrew. So he, uh, he has blessed you this morning with some of the verbiage that is in your Bible even today. But basically, John Frith was arrested, and there was no doubt that he was going to be executed. And so Willie T., who would later be executed himself, uh, wrote him a letter while he was in prison awaiting execution. We have this letter. This is what Willie T. says. He said, fear not men that threaten, nor trust men that speak fair. Your cause is Christ's gospel, a light that must be fed with the blood of faith. See, you are not alone. Follow the example of all your other dear brethren who chose to suffer in hope of a better resurrection. Man, those words are powerful. They mean more to me because they were written by someone who himself went to a martyr's death. And I think as we consider that example, we know that probably we're not called to that. So the question is, okay, you may not be called to be imprisoned in the tower and be burned at Smithfield the way some of those people were burned back in in the 1500s. The question is, what are you called to? You're called to live for Christ right where you are to live the gospel, and yes, to speak the gospel, to be known publicly as a follower of Christ, and yes, to face some opposition for that. We can do that by God's gracious provision and following the example of those who have gone ahead of us, knowing that difficulties are part of discipleship, but God is faithful, and you and I are worth more than a sparrow. Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you so much for this section of the gospel of Matthew. We thank you for the calling, the bold calling here to be your followers, to be known publicly as your disciples. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to prepare to face difficulties and opposition. Lord, we ask that you would convince us of your sovereign care for us. Lord, you've told us that you know every hair on our heads, but Lord, help us to believe that and to know that we are worth more than a sparrow. Lord, we pray that we would follow the examples of dear brothers and sisters who have gone before us and who have found their lives by losing them. Lord, help us to be willing 
to be bold, to be clear in our commitments and our convictions. Lord, I pray as we have opportunity in our community, in our workplaces, at our schools, Lord, to be known as followers of Jesus, may we be loving and caring, and may we be clear on the gospel. And Lord, may you use our lives and may you use our words to make and mature more disciples of Jesus. Lord, as we face opposition, we pray that we would endure in a way that glorifies you. We thank you for our brothers and sisters across the world who, in this very moment, perhaps, are facing persecution and doing so in a way that glorifies you. Lord, wake us up from our slumber. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.